by the way, for people just arriving now. You know that I printed 40 sets of notes. I'm just very glad we didn't plan to meet in the youth den. <laughs> yeah. Well, it really is exciting to see um, so many of you here. We've had a little trouble with the, the sound. Um, some of the amplifiers and things aren't coming on for some strange reason, so that's why I have to hold a microphone. But uh, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to present the content, and we can talk about it. So today is obviously very different to a sermon, because a sermon, I put a huge amount of effort into making it sound nice and be interesting and hopefully a little entertaining. This is really just flat-out information. Um, but the nice thing about today is that you can engage with, with the subject. So, of course, that's, that's why it's beneficial. Um, so I've really struggled to put together today's talk just because there's so much information that I want to share. So it's, it's very difficult to know where to focus. So I'm really just going to pray now, and hopefully the Lord will, will guide us. Um, th there will be things that I say tonight that you will want to question. I, I can assure you that. But just give it a little bit of time to, to kind of settle in and, and hear me out. I'm going to play four videos tonight. They're only about four, four or five minutes each. So that will be a great deal of the content. But... Uh, Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing so many of us together tonight to study your word. And Lord, we believe that even though your word was written parts of it thousands of years ago, we believe it still has relevance for us and that it is inspired and that it is our rule and our guide for our lives. So as we study your word tonight, we pray that you would guide us, Lord, and that you would lead us, and that we'd all go away tonight with something, something good to hold on to, that we'd be inspired and encouraged to study your word more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so I'm going to be balancing or working with multiple things. Can you see that all right? How, how does that look? Okay, so we are talking about the spiritual realm tonight, powers and principalities and Satan. And this is not a subject that we should just... Uh, move into like bulls in a china shop. So I thought it would be worth our while just to read a little something from Jude chapter 1. And we'll come back to Jude chapter 1 because it talks about the angels that rebelled against God there in verse 6. Uh, in Jude chapter 1 we read, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority and abandoned their, their own home. These God has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality. Verse 8, in the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare bring a slanderous accusation against him. That's really the... Oh, 
the part that I wanted to stress tonight, that we almost need to be quite respectful when we talk about the devil. And I often get very worried when Christians sing songs like Stamp Satan Lower and we get children to jump up and down. I'm, I'm really not sure that's a healthy thing. And there is a move today that Peter Wagner has actually promoted called Strategic Level Spiritual Warfare, where the idea is that we can win a whole city to the Lord by kind of in prayer binding these powers and principalities and taking authority over them. And again, I'm not really convinced that, that we're able to do that. Um, so, yeah, this is just a warning that as we get into the subject tonight, we need to remember we are human, that our understanding is, is, is partial at best. The next thing I, I want to show you is just some of the software I use to study the Bible. Um, when you study the Bible and do theology, it is very important to be able to look at what the Hebrew and Greek words are saying, because English translations of the Bible are not always that good. Sometimes translations are dumbed down to make it easier. There's a limited vocabulary, particularly the Good News Bible. It's really designed for people that speak English as a second language. So things are often simplified, and in the process, you, you lose the meaning. Now, um, when I first studied biblical languages, if we wanted to know what a word meant, we had to sort of get a book out that thick uh, and glasses this thick and then kind of painstakingly page through the book to find the word and see what the word meant. But these days, there's a lot of free software. If, you, if you're wealthy, um, you could splash out and get this Logos software. I think it starts at about 7,000 rand. Um, I was blessed with it. It's truly the best Bible study software on the market. Uh, the top of the range uh, suite goes for about 150,000. I don't have that one yet. Um, you know, and you can simply click on a word and it links to every single commentary that you've bought and everything just scrolls together. It's truly fantastic for Bible study. And then, of course, there are the cheap ones and the free ones, which I'd encourage you to get. This is eSword. It's so cheap and free that it comes with the King James Version of the Bible, because that's kind of free these days. Um, and the beauty of this is that uh, here's Psalm 8, and we can just click on, click on a word there, mouth, and it will immediately give us what the Hebrew is. So this really makes Bible study incredibly, incredibly easy. So, and I've also got apps on my phone, so when I'm in church listening to someone else's sermon, I can just go in and check out the Hebrew and the Greek. You know, it's all cheap, and it's, well, it's not even cheap, it's free. So if you're going to be doing Bible study, I'd encourage you to, to get software, and we will be looking at um, things tonight. Right. Ooh. Sorry, I really wasn't expecting such a big crowd, and this is very frustrating that this mic will not work. Okay. That's a very good idea. Luke, will you get it for me, please? Wow, I didn't even think of that. That's amazing. Right, so to kick things off, uh, the first verse that I'll, I'll share with you to maybe confuse everybody, thanks Luke, very good, um, is what we find here in Genesis 1, in verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. I always used to think that that was 
God the Father addressing God the Son or God the Spirit. This is the Trinity having a conversation among himself. But I've since discovered that before the creation of the world, before God created the earth, he created heavenly beings. And right here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God is saying to his, his staff, as it were, the, the spiritual creatures, cherubim, seraphim, archangels, watchers, uh, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and we're going to look at all of these spiritual creatures tonight. It's truly amazing stuff. But, but they're around. We know that from the book of Job, because when God created the world, they were there. They were watching, and they were rejoicing. Uh, so these are the, God's, the divine counsel that God is speaking to. But let me show you a video at this point, just so I can relax, and you can get the, the swing of where we're going tonight. So, take a look at this. Oh, no, I don't want to do an update. If you pick up the Bible, you don't have to read far before you meet the main character, God. Yeah, he appears in the Bible's first sentence. And then later on page one, you meet the humans. And there you have it. The two main players in the Bible, God and humans on the stage of our world. Well, not quite. In the Bible, there's actually a way bigger cast of characters than just humans and God. Like who? I mean the figures called the Elohim in the Hebrew scriptures. Angels, the Satan, demons, they're all over the story. Oh right, spiritual beings. To be honest, I've never really known what to do with them. It's all kind of weird. And unfortunately, almost all of our modern conceptions about these beings are based on serious misunderstandings. All right, so let's talk about spiritual beings in the story of the Bible. So first thing we have to do is reorient ourselves to how the ancient biblical authors saw the world. On pages one and two of Genesis, God brings order to a watery wilderness, separating the skies above from the land below. Right, this is earth, where we live. And then there's the heavens high above, which they saw as God's domain. But in the Bible, these spaces are not separate. They overlap. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is described throughout the Bible as a high mountain garden where heaven and earth are one. So that's the world, now it needs some creatures. God first creates and appoints the sun, moon, and stars to rule the day and night. You mean the giant flaming gas balls in the sky? Well, that's how you think about them. But the biblical authors, like all ancient people, saw them as heavenly creatures that are glorious, shining bright, and high above. Which is strange. I don't think of stars as creatures. Well, you don't. But for the biblical authors, the stars formed their categories for thinking and talking about a spiritual reality that exists alongside ours. And it's a different kind of reality, just like the sky is different from the land. And it's populated with creatures that have different kinds of bodies, shiny spiritual bodies. Okay, so almost all ancient cultures thought of the stars as divine beings, including the ancient Israelites. But the biblical authors make clear that these beings are not God. Rather, they're images of God. Their glory and high status is a reflection of the Creator's glory and status, and they exist to serve His purposes. So, the stars symbolize beings who are like God's heavenly staff team. Right. Now let's go back, because after God appointed the heavenly host, He also appointed another type of creature. The humans. Yeah, in Hebrew they're called Adam, which sounds like the Hebrew word for dirt, because that's what they're made of. So, glorious rulers above, and hairy sapiens below. But then comes the great twist. God tells the lowly humans that they are to rule all of creation. 
He invites them to rise above their dirty origins and share in God's glory as his partners. So God wants to rule the world through humans and not the spiritual beings. Exactly. This is how the poet of Psalm 8 understood the stories of Genesis. He looked up at the stars and says, What is humanity that you consider him? You made him lower than the spiritual beings, but crowned him with glory and divine majesty. This is humanity's high calling, to rule creation in the love and power of God. Very cool. But not everyone's happy. We're introduced to a spiritual being who doesn't want humans to rule. So he tricks them into thinking that they can get divine power on their own terms. They're deceived and they take the opportunity. So they're banished from the Eden mountain, exiled to wander the earth and return to the dust. This snake is bad news. Yeah, and as you read on, you discover that he's part of a spiritual rebellion that follows the humans outside of Eden, and things get worse from here. The humans still desire to rule, so they start a new project. Yes, in the Bible, this is called Babylon. It's the anti-Eden, where human and spiritual rebels join together to elevate themselves back to their former glory. And so, with all that in mind, we can now appreciate the full cast of characters that we meet in the biblical story. God, humans, and all of the spiritual beings. Exactly. And so here's a preview of what we're going to explore. We'll learn more about God's heavenly staff team called the Divine Council. Then we'll talk about angels and cherubim, key figures in the spiritual realm. And then one particular angel called the Angel of the Lord. We'll also look at the spiritual rebels in the Bible, connected with the Satan and demons, and finally, we'll see how this whole story leads to Jesus, the one who overcomes evil, reunites heaven and earth, so that a new humanity can partner with God. These videos, by the way, are put together by the Bible Project. Um, right where to from here. Let me take you through some more verses. It isn't quite straight, is it? That, that, that's fine now, eh? Okay. Okay, so here's um, an interesting psalm. I better make it smaller. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Right, so here's Psalm 82, and here's a reference to that divine counsel. I'm going to take you through quite a few references and just point some things out as we go. So here's Psalm 82. It says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. And in a moment, we're going to watch another little video that goes into the Hebrew word used there, which is Elohim. And those of you that know a little bit about Hebrew will know that Elohim is one of God's names. But actually the Bible, Elohim is a plural term because it's got the M ending. Anything in M in Hebrew at the end means it's a plural. Elohim is actually used more as a category to describe these spiritual beings that live in the heavenlies generally. And God is the Elohim, but there are these other, other Elohim which are correctly translated as gods. 
And uh, in Psalm 82, um, there's actually the challenge that some of these Elohim are not actually doing such a good job, and they're not helping God oversee the universe and the earth as, as they should be. Then uh, we'll come back to that. Here in, in Psalm 89, we have a similar reference to, to the Elohim. Verse 7 says, In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all of them. And whenever we read Psalms like Psalm 29, where we hear, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And, and even those psalms that talk about the sun, moon, and stars worship him, those are the way the ancient Hebrews are encouraging the spiritual beings, the Elohim, to be, to be worshiping God. So before that concerns you too much, let me show you a video about uh, Elohim, and then we'll tackle something else relating to the divine council. When most people think about the story of the Bible, they think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right, spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right, and in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their God Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh is in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim that is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story. You finding it interesting? Anybody disturbed? 
make sure you just get these videos done. Here's one about the Divine Council. History, people have believed in some kind of spiritual oh. realm that exists alongside the world as we know it. Right, and the biblical authors are no exception. Yeah, for them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's space as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the Bible, they're called the sons of God, or the rulers and authorities, or even sometimes the divine council. So that sounds really important. What does the divine council do? Well, they're introduced in Genesis chapter one, where they're called the host of heaven, that is the sun, moon, and stars. And there, they're also called signs, meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status. Yeah, so in Genesis 1, God appoints them to rule over the day and night. Exactly. And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite King Ahab. Or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. But why does God need a team? If he's powerful enough to create the whole universe, he could surely rule it without any help. Well, he doesn't need them. But apparently, the God of the Bible wants to share authority with others. Oh, right. God shares his rule with human partners on Earth. And so, in the same way, there's a parallel story of God sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners. Yes, that is, until it all falls apart in a twin rebellion. So you have humans who want to rule on Earth on their own terms. So they start building their own nation using their own definitions of good and evil. Yeah, the famous story of the building of Babylon. But check this out. When biblical authors like Moses or Isaiah looked back at the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion, but also a spiritual rebellion. What was this spiritual rebellion? Well, there were members of the divine council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God, and they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the creator. And so Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. And so God scatters the people from Babylon into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. Yes, and this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice. Human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. Yeah, when humans give their allegiance to these powers, it leads to a world like ours. Right, and the best example of this is the story of the Exodus, where we're told that the Egyptian genocide of the Israelites was inspired by Pharaoh and by the gods of Egypt. That's really intense. But it's not the end of the story. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and its gods, he invited them to become his covenant partners and learn a different way of ruling the world. And they agree to it, but in the end, they don't honor the partnership. They give their allegiance to other gods. And so this leads to their exile in Babylon, where they become slaves once again to a foreign nation and their spiritual rulers, awaiting a new exodus into freedom. 
And this is where the story of Jesus picks up. He said he was here to rescue the world and take it back from the rebels. Which rebels, the human ones or the spiritual ones? Exactly. For Jesus, it was all connected. When he marched into Jerusalem for Passover, he was announcing the ultimate exodus. He was there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities, and he did it by giving up his life. So this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. Yes. Jesus condemned our evil by allowing the rebels to unleash all their hate and evil on him. But then he overcame it with the power of his love and resurrection life. And then Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. Now the ultimate human and divine partner. This is really good news. Yeah, and it's why the apostles started inviting everyone to give their allegiance to the risen Jesus, to discover freedom and a new way to be human. Now, while Jesus gained a decisive victory over the rebel powers, he didn't destroy them. They're still around causing problems. Yes, and in fact, they are the problem. The apostles said that humanity's real enemy is never another human. Rather, it's the spiritual powers that animate our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and violence. Uh, so when I see people hurting other people, behind it is the divine counsel gone rogue. How do you deal with this kind of enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul said we can resist by putting on the character traits of Jesus like armor, faithfulness, justice, and peace. And he said that our only weapon is the word of God. That is, the biblical story of good news that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life and love. In fact, I'm just going to show the last one, then we'll be done with, with the videos. This one's about spiritual creatures. We've been talking about spiritual beings in the Bible, and we've looked at how God is in the heavenly realms, but not by himself. There's a whole staff team that the Bible calls the Divine Council. But in the Bible, there are still more beings in the spiritual realm, like the cherubim and also the angels. So let's talk about them. Okay, first, the cherubim. These are chubby little babies with wings, right? No, you gotta get that image out of your head. Cherubim, or in Hebrew, cherubim, they're way more fascinating. They're described as hybrid creatures, a collage of different animals, and every time they do appear, they look a little bit different. That's intense. Yeah, they're supposed to be intimidating. They stand guard at the boundary between heaven and earth. If you see them, you know you're entering the presence of the one who is above all and truly other. The first time cherubim show up in the story of the Bible, they're standing outside of the Garden of Eden. Right, the garden is God's temple residence, and so he places these spiritual bodyguards at the entrance so that the rebel humans can't get back in and ruin everything. But the biblical story is about how God wants us back in his presence. Yes, exactly. So this is why he chose the people of Israel and gave them the gift of a symbolic miniature Eden called the tabernacle, and then later the Jerusalem temple. In both of these spaces, cherubim were painted and engraved all over, reminding the priests that they are working in God's presence. Now, if a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would see there a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and on it were two cherubim. What's going on here? Well, the biblical authors describe the Ark as the footstool of God's throne, which the cherubim are carrying. Like we read in Psalm 99, God sits enthroned above the cherubim. But there was no actual throne above the box. Right, the Israelites weren't supposed to represent God with any physical image. But when the 
prophets had visions about this space, they saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. Okay, so cherubim guard the sacred space, carry God's throne, but why do they look like animal mashups? Well, they're symbolic representations of all the creatures of the earth because they all belong to God. This is why in Isaiah's vision, all of the creatures are singing. Everything that fills the earth is God's glory. Like a choir. Yeah, through the cherubim, all creation offers praise to its maker. Great, that's the cherubim. Now let's talk about angels. I'm way more familiar with them, human-like figures with feathery wings. No, wait, stop. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. What? No wings? No angel wings. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people because they look like us, just a bit more impressive. But the cherubim have wings. Yeah, and the angels are different because they have a different purpose. Okay, which is? Well, humans can't just march into God's realm, so God will reach out to us, and he often does so through these spiritual ambassadors. So angels are like spiritual messengers. Yeah, in fact, that's what the word angel means, a messenger. Right, this happens a lot in the Bible, like the angel who tells Mary she's pregnant with Jesus. Yeah, and then the other main role of angels is to perform missions on God's behalf. Sometimes they rescue people from danger, like when Peter is released from prison. And there's some really cool angels, like Michael and Gabriel. Yeah, the name Gabriel means God is my power. And Michael means who is like God. But also notice, these names point to God, not to the angels. Like humans, the angels are images of God's presence and power. But still, how cool would it be to meet an angel? Yeah, and maybe you will, and maybe you already have. But no one in the Bible is ever encouraged to go looking for angels. And when angels do show up, people are usually puzzled or freaked out. So angels are really awesome, but they play a supporting role in the Bible. Yes, because God's ultimate purpose is to bring humans back into his presence in a reunited heaven and earth. And in the meantime, he uses angels to guide and to serve his people. Did you enjoy those videos? So they have the Bible project. I'm just going to summarize very briefly the four videos that we've uh, watched, and then I'm going to share some more scriptures with you. So basically the first video is an introduction to spiritual beings, and they introduce this cast of characters. And before God creates this world, he creates a whole lot of spiritual beings that that occupy the spirit realm. And let's name some of these beings. We've got the cherubim, the seraphim, the living creatures, angels, archangels. Satan is presumably was one of these Elohim, because Elohim is the category of these beings that are different to physical beings. So these are the characters that God creates. The snake in the Garden of Eden. Eden was this place where heaven and earth overlapped. I was confused about the fact, you know, wasn't Eve super surprised when a snake spoke to her? You know, did all the animals talk or was it just the snakes? What's going on there? And I've, I've come to realize in the light of this teaching that actually the 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 snake is really an, one of the rogue Elohim kind of appearing in an animal form. We know that angels can appear as human beings. So clearly these Elohim 
characters and beings can manifest themselves in the spirit world um, because people entertain angels and they don't know it. So my understanding now is that the, the, the snake that deceives Adam and Eve is really a rogue Elohim, and I wouldn't necessarily say it was Satan um, because he's not named as such actually in that passage. Um, yeah, there's just so much to, to talk about here. Then we looked at Elohim. Have you all got that covered? It's a little bit like the word sheep. So sheep can refer to one sheep um, or it can refer to lots of sheep. So that's the kind of word that Elohim is. Then there was the video about the divine council. The divine council is really God's staff team to help him rule the universe. Uh, they cheer God on, they worship God, and they participate in making decisions. Not because God can't make the decision himself, but sometimes God outsources certain problems to the divine council. And if you stick with me, I'll show you some examples of that. It's interesting that God wants to share his authority and to share his rule. That God has given us as human beings authority to rule this earth. You know, Psalm 8, what is humankind that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than the gods. Um, you've put all things under our feet. And, and this is our domain. And God wants us as human beings to have authority and domain here on the earth. And it's as though in the heavenly realms, God has also got a, a, a huge team of, of spiritual beings that he wants to help him govern the spirit realm. And just think how many angels there must be. Jesus spoke about a child and said, their angel beholds the Father uh, on, on their behalf. So, I mean, if, if all seven billion people on the planet actually have an angel uh, assigned to them, maybe even more than one, that's a lot of angels that we're talking about. And we know from the New Testament that angels are here to serve us those of us that are inheriting salvation. Um, by the way, angels are also the lowest of the Elohim. I don't want to speak disrespectfully of angels, but they are the messengers and perform kind of uh, the lower level tasks. The, the, the higher spiritual beings would definitely be the four living creatures, uh, the 24 elders, maybe some of the cherubim, but there's definitely this hierarchy in, in the spirit world. And then this final video, speaking about cherubim, um, yeah, hybrid creatures that, that represent some of the, the created order. Um, let me just take you through some more verses now that just show some of these things in action. 1 Kings 22, is that on the screen? Very good. Um, here, is, here is God outsourcing a decision in 1 Kings 22. God wants something done, and um, he wants someone else to take the decision. Uh, Micah is giving a prophecy and he says, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on the right and the left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking 
Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death. One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. Oh, by what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. He said, you will succeed in enticing him. The Lord said, go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. So this is a mind-blowing story, is it not? There's a problem with a king, and God wants this guy dead. Um, and so he asks his divine counsel, what's the best way to eliminate this, this character? And that's the question put to the divine counsel. And one of the spirits eventually comes up, well, I'm happy to go out and entice this guy and deceive him and, and lead him to his death in battle. I mean, how is that for a story? So there's the divine counsel in action. Here's some other examples. Remember the story of Daniel. Um, here in, in Daniel, they're wondering what to do about King Nebuchadnezzar because he's got too big for his boots and needs to be brought down to size a bit. So there's this prophecy that he's going to be cut down like this awesome tree. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches. And he's going to go mad. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let a beast's mind be given to him. So he's going to become stupid like an animal for seven periods of time. And who again is it that comes up with this plan? And, and in the past, I, I don't know what it was about me. I always just kind of overread these verses and never looked too carefully at them. But here in verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. That's another category of spiritual beings that we know very little about. But you can go into that Hebrew word. There is a creature called a watcher, and they have some spiritual function. And they obviously make this decision because God's given them some authority in the spiritual realm. They make a decision that they're going to do this to King Nebuchadnezzar. And they do it so that he will know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, that God is sovereign. So here is another outsourced decision, this time by the watchers, and they, um, they're taking action here on earth. So there's just so much I could talk about. You're all familiar with Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about the, Nep the Nephilim, these people that became giants. Now, this is a passage that's confused me and, and many Christians uh, for centuries, and there are really three interpretations. The first is something to do with these were the Sethites or some other tribe that's being referred to, but I don't accept this. The second way to understand that passage is to think that human humans are being referred to in sort of kingly terms, but that also doesn't fit the context. The best way, I believe, to understand who the Nephilim are and what happened in Genesis chapter 6 is that, in fact, some of these spiritual beings in the heavenly realm, part of the Elohim that rebelled against God, they lusted after earthly women, took on kind of physical flesh or like angels became 
in some way entered this physical world masqueraded as people and fathered children. And that's actually why this kind of giant race of people came into being. And the Bible talks a lot about the Nephilim and also the, the Anak, which we read about at the time of David. And this guy, Michael Heiser, who I'm quoting a lot of his stuff, he believes that one of the reasons that the Israelites were told to kill some of the Canaanites, certain tribes, all of them, was to wipe out, you know, babies, children, adults. It was a spiritual act. They were all to be killed uh, as part of the harem, which was holy war. It was to wipe out this this line, this lineage, DNA that had become corrupted through the Elohim uh, procreating with, with, with human women. And this actually ties in also with that scripture I read from Jude earlier where Jude writes about now the angels that did not stick to their appointed areas, how... Um, God locked them up and dealt with them, and how that is also then compared to what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think there is some kind of sexual theme going on there. Um, okay, we've already looked at Psalm 8. Uh, let me just show you something interesting here. I'm normally quite a big fan of the, NIV, the New American Standard Bible. But I want to show you, do you see the difference in interpretation between the New American Standard and the NIV, how they both translate the word Elohim? The New American Standard talks about, you know, what is man that you have take thought of him, yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. Okay, they're going for the singular interpretation of Elohim, which is legitimate, but actually, I think the NIV hits the nail on the head and gets the context right, where they go for the plural um, interpretation of Elohim. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Um, so I just throw that in for you. Let's, um, let's dive into Job, because it's a fascinating book. So there's in Job chapter 1, we have Job being a great dad and he's praying for his children just in case they've committed some sin. So he's interceding them for them. Now this, I think, is the first time in the Bible that we're introduced to Satan. Um, and the Hebrew word for Satan is simply the word adversary. Um, and it's actually not a proper noun many times in the Bible. So... Uh, sometimes when you read about Satan, it should not have a capital S, it should be a small s, and the meaning is it's an adversary. So if you're playing table tennis with somebody, the person on the other side of the table is your Satan. Okay, I mean, that's a legitimate use of, of the Hebrew word for Satan. But sometimes the word Satan has the in front of it um, in, in the Bible context. Uh, in the Hebrew, that would be ha, which is the. So it would be the Satan. And then it is, in fact, uh, capitalized. And then we're talking about a particular spiritual being. Uh, and this is quite hard to handle. But in the book of Job, we see the divine council having another one of their meetings. 
Uh, verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them, because he's part of the Elohim. He seems to be part of this divine council, and actually is not a particularly high-up being, because he has the lowly job of kind of checking out what's going on in the earth and reporting back to God. So the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then it's God who initiates this conversation with Satan and says, have you seen my servant Job and how much he loves me? Uh, and then the Satan character says, yeah, well, that's just because you're so good to Job. If you kind of gave him a hard time in life, then maybe he wouldn't serve you. So God says, oh, okay, well, I'll take you on then, Satan. Go and see what you can do with Job, and, and I bet you he's going to still love and serve me. So I, I'm just mentioning this to you because in the Old Testament, Satan is not seen as the devil. That's definitely something that develops later. And also there's no link here to Satan here being um, the, the, the Elohim or the spiritual being that deceives Eve in the Garden of Eden. So that's what's going on in the book of Job. Very interesting. If we can hop now to the New Testament, Ephesians 6, young adults, they've done this in their, their life groups lately. I taught on this at the Forge. I'm sure, you, I'm sure we're all very familiar with it. But Ephesians 6 talks about this battle that we're in. And it doesn't just say we're in a battle against Satan. Not at all. But we're against our struggle is not against flesh and blood, i.e. real people, but against rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So here again is reference to the Elohim that have, that have gone rogue, as it were. And there's a hierarchy of them, and they do different things, and they were designed to serve God in different ways. And just as God created us with a free will, and we rebelled, God created the Elohim with a free will, and some of them, not all of them, also rebelled. Here's another fascinating passage. I'm sure those of you that do intercession are familiar with it. In Daniel chapter 10, uh, Daniel is, is having a hard time in life, and he's praying, and his prayer is not being answered. And he has a vision, and in the vision he's spoken to, in verse 12, he's told, Hey, Daniel, don't give up, don't be afraid. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for three weeks. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the prince of Persia. I mean, this stuff is just, I want to say crazy, but it's, it's not crazy. I mean, this really is in the Bible, that there are these powers and principalities, and they're, they're warring among themselves. And what's going on in the spiritual realm actually affects us down here. And even sometimes when we pray about things, there can be a spiritual resistance in the heavenly to our prayers being answered. And this thing took three weeks. I mean, maybe it can take a lot longer. And there are many, many examples in the Bible of, of this kind of thing happening. Um, 
Yeah. Right. Yep. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And what else is fascinating? You know, I've just, the problem with me giving this talk tonight is that I've got so much in my head. I've got no idea, like, what of it to actually share. And perhaps I'm not even doing justice to some of the material. But, but what this guy, Michael Heiser, uh, he wrote this book, it's called The Unseen Realm, Discovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. He says that at the Tower of Babel, uh, God had created these spiritual powers, the Elohim, to kind of support, to support and, and help God in his purposes with, with the earth, although humans are to rule the earth. And these powers then went rogue. He says that the Tower of Babylon is where both human beings and these spiritual rulers, these ungodly spiritual powers, both get together to defy God and to build this tower that reaches to the heavens. And he says at that point, God actually split not only people into people groups, but actually various Elohim and spiritual powers went off with different nations. And, and later God was to say, Israel is my inheritance, but that other people groups and other nations have other spiritual powers associated with them. And this is where we get the concept of territorial spirits from. And if you can look at world history, you can almost see how, you know, how spiritual powers have, have been at work in, in the history, throughout history. Let me uh, take you to a fascinating passage, Ezekiel 28. So we don't know much about um, Satan, but Ezekiel 28 starts off being a prophecy against the ruler of Tyre. And you can read all about it. You're prideful and you've exploited people with your business practices, etc., etc. But then halfway through this very interesting prophecy, from verse 11, it's almost as though the Bible is giving us a hint of what actually happened to Satan. And although it is the, the king of Tyre is being spoken about, you can see there's another story unfolding in the background. And perhaps it is the, the fall of Satan. Uh, so son of man, that's the way the prophet is being spoken to, uh, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. And then this is what the prophecy is. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Why is there a reference now? The king of Tyre was never in Eden. It's as though in this prophecy, the prophet is now switching to, to speaking about the fall of Satan. You're in Eden, the garden of God. And there's this description of all the precious stones. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. Verse 14 is very interesting. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. So it's although Satan was actually perhaps a cherub, one of these great spiritual beings, 
um, who was there in Eden or where, where heaven and earth overlapped, and it was there that he decided he wanted to compete with God. Um, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So that's very interesting. I believe this is, in fact, giving us some insight into the fall of uh, who we refer to as, as Satan. Right. Um, how are we doing for time? Okay. Has anybody... Well, let's have a bit of a breather. Anybody else got a question? Something sort of burning in your mind where you've heard all some of what I've shared tonight and you just want to respond to it. Tim. Nephilim. The Nephilim, yeah. Okay, so in uh, Genesis 6, yep. it talks about them in anti flood times. Does it? Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. And your point is? But then when the flood happens. Okay, yep. Um, of course it's pre-flood. I mean, it's Genesis 6, yep, yep. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, maybe what happened before happened again. Yeah, I mean, that's not out of the question. Let me, um, out of the 40 notes that I prepared for the 40 of you that I was expecting. um, So I've got a great article here about when angels do time. Let me just bring up some of those scriptures. Um, yeah, there are two references to angels, to the angels falling. When angels do time. Let me go a bit bigger here. Tell me when I get it right. Okay, stop. All right. Um, okay, so this is very interesting. So this author says, what if I told you that the only place in the New Testament that describes angels sinning does not call them demons, has no connection to Lucifer, and has sent them to jail. Um, so there are really two references to, to fallen angels. Um, and the first is that 2 Peter 2 verse 4. Uh, it says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Again, hell is a terrible word. It's, it's a mistranslation. Hell should translate the Greek word Gehenna, which is a place of punishment. That that should not be there. This is talking about Hades, which is a completely different word, which is a different concept. It's talking about kind of the the realm of the dead. Um, And then another reference to fallen angels would be Jude 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains. Let me tell you another fascinating thing also in the notes that I prepared for 40 of you. So... um, Elohim, the term Elohim is used in two, four, six different ways. Okay, here they are. You might want to write them down, although I will make these notes available. So, the Elohim, over a thousand times it refers to God. 
Okay, so he is the Elohim of Elohim. That's the translation, Lord of Lords. Or he is the Elohim. There is no other Elohim beside him in comparison to him. Okay, the mem secondly, the members of Yahweh's heavenly council are Elohim. You can, the, the actual Hebrew word is used in Psalm 82. In fact, we should look at Psalm 82. Let me just go there. Psalm 82. Okay, we looked at that. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the Elohim. It is the, the Hebrew word Elohim there, translated gods. Um, so so it, is, it is Elohim who make up the heavenly council. Then the gods of foreign nations are referred to as, as Elohim. In fact, I'm sure I've got... Okay, so the gods of foreign nations, 1 Kings 11.33, are referred to as Elohim, where uh, people are told, don't worship foreign gods. You know, like Baal and Molech and Asherah. These were all the names of gods of Canaanite nations. They, the, the Hebrew word Elohim is used to describe them. And then there is a fascinating term that demons are also referred to as being Elohim. And that is in Deuteronomy 32.17. I'm going to go there. In fact, let me go there in Esaud. Our cheap free software, Deuter so you can see how it works, Deuteronomy 32, and what's the verse? Oh, I've got the notes. Oh, 17. Can you see that? It was a terribly small. Okay. They, can you see? Oh, very difficult. They sacrificed unto devils, and I click on that word, okay, shade, and in Hebrew that is demons, they sacrificed unto shade, not to God, okay, and that word there's Elo Eloah, you see that, and then the, the writer says to gods, and that's the term Elohim, can you see that, it was a terribly small um, whom they knew not. So there's the verse again, and you can see that demons are being referred to also by the term Elohim, because it's a general term describing spiritual beings. These people, they sacrificed unto demons, not to God, Yahweh, but to Elohim, who they knew not. Um, okay, oh, this is truly going to blow your mind. Then when Saul goes to the witch of Endor, and that story is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 28 and verse 13. And God's not talking to Saul anymore, so he's desperate to know what he should do about his life. Um, let me just turn to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. And the verse is 13. 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. Okay, so this is now, uh, Saul is, is desperate and he's talking to this medium. The king said to her, be not afraid, 
What sawest thou? Gee, King James language. I hope some of you are really enjoying that. What sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending. Let me click on that word. You see there, gods? In Strong's dictionary, word H432, it's Elohim. So even when Saul is having this encounter with a spirit medium and says to her, what do you see? She uses the term Elohim. So Elohim can even refer to, to demons. I saw gods ascending out of the earth, and then there's a conversation that goes on. Uh, and maybe this rogue Elohim who is impersonating Samuel gets all cross with Saul and says, why are you bothering me? You shouldn't be doing this because Deuteronomy 18 says we mustn't contact the dead. Uh, oh, where are we? Okay, and then finally in Genesis 35 and verse 7, um, Elohim, the term is also used to describe angels. Okay, I've said enough, well, possibly, uh, so maybe we just need to just have some, some questions and response to some of the things that you've said. Look, I could go on and we could, we could go into more detail about the living creatures because there's the living, in fact, this is so exciting, I must just say it. In Revelation chapter 4, in the throne room of God, you know there are the four living creatures. You know, why, who are these what are these things? Well, these are, these are Elohim. These are part of the, the great spiritual creatures high up in, in the hierarchy of things that are right there with God. They're the seven spirits. Yeah, you want to think who they are. They're the 24 elders. Maybe these aren't people. These aren't kind of, you know, okay, Moses, you can be one of the 24 elders. No, these are also spiritual creatures. So in the book of Revelation, when we get insight into what's going on in the heavenly realm, in, in Revelation 4, there's all, all of these creatures that are there, as well as saints that have died. And they're all saying, God, how much longer? When are you going to rescue our friends still on the earth? So, so the people that have died in the Lord, that's a separate category uh, to these spiritual creatures. And then also there's Ezekiel's great vision, where Ezekiel sees these living creatures, and they've got lights that flash and wheels that turn, and they move kind of in any and every direction all at the same time. I mean, it's truly out of this world. But those are Ezekiel's living creatures, and he describes them. Um, and this isn't poetry. I believe these are real beings that God has created. They're out there and they're having an effect on our world today. Okay, good. So let's leave it there. <laughs> so I'll take questions and comments. Um, I did say that this was going to be an hour long because I want people to come. And I know that if you have meetings that are too long, then people can't come because you can spare more than an hour on a, on a work night. Um, so, hey, you're free to go. I hope you got something out of tonight, but I'm going to stay here and talk to people that want to still talk. Right, who's got the first question? Yeah. Yes, Transformers. It's Ezekiel 20, what? <laughs>
Yeah. No, I think some of these movies can open up our minds to these spiritual powers. Yeah, and certainly on the demonic side, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we probably make too much a big deal about Satan. Um, you know, in the book of Revelation, Satan is described as having his throne in the city of Pergamum. Um, so he's not an omnipresent being. So maybe he was res resident there. I don't know where Satan lives today. And I don't want to say where I think he might live over the microphone in case it's being recorded. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, but clearly there are many powers and principalities, and although as Christ on the cross has disarmed them, and the God of the Lord Jesus Christ is soon going to crush Satan under our feet. I think that's how Romans ends. Um, it, it hasn't happened yet, so the victory is still being outworked. But I think a lot of the... the the religions in this world, the worship of false gods, behind these gods are these fallen creatures. We don't know where they, where they come from. We've got an inkling of how Satan fell from that Ezekiel 26. We know what happened to the angels that, that fell, but they're all in prison, so we don't have to worry about them. Um, but there are other Elohim that have turned against God and are causing, you know, continue to rebel. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I would say someone like Hitler out and out was possessed of a powerful spirit. Um, and, and he's not the only example. I mean, there are many examples of people that have caused great evil. I mean, you think of all the dictators in communist countries over the years, the Pol Pots and, and others. You know, I would say there were powerful spiritual forces at work. You know, even things like racism and the history of South Africa, who knows what powers and principalities deluded people and, and empowered ungodly ideologies. And that's part of spiritual warfare. It's taking every thought captive. So, so sometimes, you know, Satan can, can oppress us and oppress us by demons, but occasionally Satan himself gets involved in a temptation. Like with Jesus, it was Satan entered into Judas's heart um, Satan was involved with Ananias and Sapphira, if I'm not mistaken. How is Satan so...
Yeah. Well, there are a lot of gray areas here, but I think what I've highlighted tonight, there's sufficient biblical evidence to say, no, that is, certainly for me, I, I would say, no, that is, we can be clear on that. Some things we don't know, some things we can know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sometimes when we read like a Hebrew phrase, a lying spirit, um, in English, lying for us is morally very clear cut. The Hebrew word is more like a deceptive spirit. So this was a spirit that is going to now trick Ahab. It was at Ahab. Well, who was the, this is a spirit, one of the spirits. So I think it's like one of the good guys, potentially, is now going to trick Ahab into doing something that's going to result in his death. And I think we see even God doing a similar thing with Pharaoh uh, at the time of the plagues, that God is, is tricking Pharaoh, like, hey, hey, I'm going to punish you if you do this. And we read that it's actually God that is strengthening Pharaoh in his rebellion. It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to not do what God wanted Pharaoh to do. So you've got this very strange dynamic going on. Yeah, there's a lot of strange stuff in the Bible, and that's one of them. So I wouldn't say that that angel who went out to deceive Ahab, sometimes in war you do need to deceive somebody and lead them into their own death, and it's a nice easy way to get rid of the problem. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that after that temptation, an angel comes and makes bread for Jesus, doesn't he? To strengthen him in the, in the desert. I mean, that's what happened after the 40 days. There was a hand here, Amy. Don't be sorry. Yep. Oh, okay. And uh, what his interpretation of it was is that it was also a righteous judgment that the Lord was pouring out onto Ahab, yes. who was one of Israel's worst kings. Yes. And this was a way in which he allowed the spirit to go and actually cause disaster upon Ahab's yes. house because of the rebellion and the sin that Ahab was living in. So it was a just judgment. Thank you. Well, oh, up at the top, James. Yes, yeah. Like Saul gets spent, gets, gets sent depression. It actually says, uh, this is after King Saul had kind of given up on God really and been disobedient because God had told him to do things and he'd done his own thing. And eventually we read about King Saul that an evil spirit from the Lord went and afflicted Saul 
and then David would come in and twang his guitar then and Saul would feel a little bit better. Um, but that was a punishment that God sent on, on to Saul. Yeah. So it's interesting that often when we read about spirits in the Old Testament, we assume it's a demon, we assume it's evil, but sometimes from the language, these can just be angels or one of these other spiritual beings that God is sending to perform a task. Great. Yep. 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 Lizelle, I'm glad you raised that because that is the one single thing that I've struggled with the most in these videos where this Old Testament scholar says that in the minds of the ancient people, the sun and the moon and the stars were the Elohim. Um, because obviously we know that stars are you know, burning balls of gas or whatever they are these days. Um, so, so I think I wrote down the exact phrase because I knew someone like you would ask the question. <laughs> And I need it for myself. Um, okay, ancient people thought of the sun, moon, and stars as spiritual beings. And I've got a question mark next to that. Um, I think he says that it, it was a way in which they could speak about these spiritual beings, maybe partly metaphoric. Although we do have to decide what do we do about the fact that it says the sun was established to govern the day and the moon the night. And the Bible talks a lot about the morning stars. And the morning stars are part of the heavenly council in certain places. Um, yeah, so I don't know what, quite what to make of that. You got me there. Rich. That would be very open. <laughs> so I would, thank you, Rich, and I'm, I don't dismiss that comment. I mean, that's, wow. If the, I know people are also debating, could an AI, an artificial intelligence, also become conscious? That's not out of the question. That's just before they take over the world. Yeah, Judy. <laughs> Very briefly, yeah. Um, 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Judy's just raising a, a very interesting point, and that is there are a whole lot of biblical books that are not inspired books, that they are part of the canon, and Catholics would regard them as part of the Apocrypha, and there are other books like the book of Enoch that's actually referenced in, in our letter of Jude in the New Testament. So there are these other books that date back to these periods, and also the rabbinical writings sometimes refer to some of these things. And so it is possible to glean more information sometimes from these books. Yeah, but they're not, they're not inspired, so sometimes we just need to be a little bit careful about what, what we read there. Okay, last question, and then we are wrapping up. So, if, who's it going to be? Okay, yes. The seraphim in Isaiah 6. I was also trying to work out what it is that seraphim do. They seem to cleanse preachers' lips. So, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the best I could come up with. All right, I'm going to pray and then we're done. Lord, we don't want to be presumptuous and, and jump to crazy conclusions. And uh, we just pray that your spirit, Lord, would lead us into all truth. That like you warned the church at Colossae, that we wouldn't become obsessed with angels and the worship of angels and worrying what they're up to. Lord, thank you that you have made us in your image and you've given us a great task to do of worshiping you, loving you, and serving you in this world. And we pray that you would help all of us to do it in a way that glorifies you. Protect us, Lord, from the spiritual forces of evil. Thank you for your blood shed on the cross that won a victory over them. And we pray that we would all be covered by the blood of Jesus and that we would have on the full armor of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I do have notes here for 40 of you. And um, I will make some place on the church website. In fact, that's probably better to just download it. Yeah, okay. I'll make a spot.